Welcome back, everybody, to the Inking Out Loud podcast. On today's episode, which is number 13, we're going to be finishing up on our read of Heroes Die by Matthew Woodring Stover. Uh, as with previous podcasts, of course, you know, due to the nature of the graphic content in this book, we're going to be we're going to be warning readers right now that this podcast in particular, this episode, I should say, will be laden with a bit more violence in language than the other episodes have been so far. Uh, but, you know, then again, if you haven't really finished Stover's book, you probably shouldn't be listening to this particular episode anyway. So, um, I'll be kicking it off here. As always, I'm your host, Rob Santos. I'm joined once again by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And our sound engineer, Mr. Patrick McCaffrey. Patrick, say hi, man. Hey, guys. How we living? Hey. So, boys, heroes die. Where do we begin? Anywhere in particular? Oh, God. Oh. Well, we... Uh... <laughs> I guess we should talk about where we stopped off, which was yes. at the end of day four last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we recorded, so it I'm trying been. to refresh myself. Yeah, we myself. skipped our recording. It's been about two weeks since we finished this book. Yeah, we skipped last week. So day five uh, uh, started off... Oh, that's right. Yeah, so day four ended with Kane getting yanked. Uh, Kohlberg, mm-hmm. you know, going for the emergency recall. And so day five is where we get... Uh, one of the biggest kind of full-scale battles in this book, if not the biggest. So, uh, you know, then that is where Palace Rill is trying to grab the Ectiri and uh, escape with them, and Lamorak betrays her once again. And uh, Lamarack <laughs> is such a rat. Oh, he's awful. He, oh, man, he's yeah. I mean, there are other characters in this book beside which he kind of pales in comparison. But you know, well, he's still not for, a very, very pleasant gentleman. For well, he's sure. Ple- no, no, I take that back. He is pleasant. He's just a snake. Yeah. Yeah, he's a coward. Um, like Baron is more evil. Oh, clearly. Yeah. However, like Lamarack is more petty. Yeah, I feel like uh-huh. like Baron at least has a certain uh, sort of gravity to him. Lamorak's just an asshole. Yeah, he's he's yeah. so selfish. Every like his reasoning behind these ridiculous betrayals, <laughs> I, it, it's so dumb. It's so thin. Like it, it, it's the like, rationalizing is what. Yeah, you're right. What actually uh, gets me about him? Yeah, um, I'm doing <clears throat> Palace Rill a favor by getting her killed. Yeah, <laughs> hold on. Say again. I missed that. He's he, he he rationalizes to himself that he's doing Palace a favor by oh that he's yeah her. oh my god yes Lamarack like okay so like we're I mean we're gonna be finishing off the discussion about this book today we're I'm not worrying about spoilers we're just gonna be spoiling the shit out of everything left and right I uh, there were a lot of moments that I really really liked some character defining moments that I really uh, <laughs> that I really really enjoyed um, but uh, picking up exactly where we left off though to start with. Um, at the end of the first part, we had a big cliffhanger, which I'm not used to getting in the middle of a book like that. You know, we have mm-hmm. Hari, or at least at this point, it's still Kane waking up inside the studio. And that's a really big, oh shit, oh, kind yeah. of moment. Like, oh no, how is he going to deal with this? And of course, it was a little satisfying to see Colborn kind of like panicking and saying, oh my god, get security here now, get security here now, somebody defend me, he's coming for me, I know he's coming for me. That was like, oh yeah, yeah. If anything, like... We were just discussing Lamarack, but I really think Colborn doesn't get enough Colberg. Oh my god, that guy. He was hard he was hard to read. I mean, the classism in this book is just all on a whole other level. What'd you guys think of Colborn? Like Colberg. 
Kohlberg. Oh my God. I've been listening to the audiobook the entire time, as you could tell. <laughs> and it sounds like uh, Rudnicki is saying Kohlberg. It's Kohlborn? Kohlberg. Kohlberg. Yeah. Oh, I've been saying. Yeah, Col- okay, correct. sorry. Thank-, <laughs> Thank you. All right. Okay, either way, you know exactly. Who- the- Arturo, right? His first name is Arturo, Arturo I believe. Arturo, yes. Correct. Which is really odd because I started listening. As soon as I finished this, I started listening to Sanderson's Skybreaker. And right away, I started hearing the name Arturo. Arturo. Skyward. Arturo. Oh my God! What is wrong with me today, guys? Jesus, I don't have enough rum in me. That's the problem. But I started, yeah, I started hearing Arturo, 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 like right away, a half dozen times in the first minute. I, I guess it was during a battle scene, and I was like, "Wait, hold on!" I had a serious moment of like oh. introspective concern. And I was like, "Wait, am I losing my mind?" But no, it, it just happens to be a, a coincidence. Yeah. But yeah, what about him? Oh, Kohlberg is. Oh. He's a piece of shit. This guy, and in some ways, I hate him more than Baron, which makes me kind of question my moral yeah. compass again i mean i i won't say too much about kohlberg because he remains a character into blade of taishao which we will be you know getting into in further episodes Ooh, okay here. but good but his uh obviously you know because skipping to the end of this book kohlberg uh goes on trial because you know kane manipulates things and gets him set up and, and everybody has evidence that Kohlberg was actually trying to get Palace killed and ordered Lamarack to betray her and all this stuff. And and so Kohlberg is downcasted to labor uh, from an administrator and Hari replaces him at the end. Mm, uh, yeah. And and so we, we get a very different kind of Kohlberg in the second book. But in, in this book, he's such an abuser of his power. He's so... Uh, like, like he's such a brown callous. noser. He's so callous. He's such a brown noser for everybody upcast of him, and then just an absolute asshole to everybody below oh, him. A, you know, um, that yeah, seems a product kind of, of society. typical or expected behavior for someone who lives in this society, though. So mm. it never really comes as a surprise to us. Like it, his duplicity mm. is believable on the very yes. surface. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it is, Duplicity. in a way, you're right there, where it's sort of expected of people to recognize their station and act appropriately, but the manners in which Kohlberg uses that act appropriately, so to speak, to further his own goals, he's, mm-hmm. he's, oh, he's so slimy. Oh. <laughs> slimy, that's a good word for it, yeah. Oh, God, there's a lot. there's so much to hate about so many characters in this book, but I really <laughs> think that... That sticks out. That, that, that's, that's a testament to Sover's skill. I mean, to be able to provoke a visceral, physical reaction from a reader like that, I think is really a hallmark yeah. of, of talent. Like, I'm, of course, I, drawing back to, I just want to, like, give a shout out to, to Martin really quickly. I'll almost never do this, but for Joffrey, again, <laughs> yeah. God, he is such a little dickhead. These, these, there are these characters that that you just love to hate. I think that's how I want to put it. You love to hate these characters. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Sanderson Sadius comes to mind as well. Yeah. Uh, but Kohlberg is such a despicable little cretin. Like it's it's yeah. almost. I'm really really excited to see where he goes for book two, just because I don't think it's going to be good. Clearly for oh, him, and oh. I'm kind of interested. I want to read that. I do. You have no idea. Does that make me a bad person? I don't know. That kind of brings together the whole morality of, of exactly what, uh, you know, a big theme of these books is, you know? Mm-hmm. You, you can draw enjoyment out of someone else's experience, whether they are good or not. 
Yes. Right? We, uh, at some point, should have an episode of this podcast dedicated to the most loathsome characters. <laughs> Everyone gets to pick I one love that character. idea. Well, pa- I love it. Pat, we're just going to end up with only Gap Cycle and Kane characters. Oh, <laughs> oh I think... Uh, well, it depends what you mean by... There might be some outliers in there, but... What do you mean by... T- it depends what you mean by terrible characters, though. No, no, loathsome. Loathsome characters. Okay, but then again, it could be characters who are legitimately evil characters, the worst slimy cretins imaginable, or you could have characters that just piss people off even though they're good. That's like a few names I could mention that's right what's now. That's great about it. <laughs> you know? But yes, I, I love that idea. Let's act, let's write that down for the for, for the future. Sure, Absolutely. yeah. Let's We're have equal opportunity episode. haters here. <laughs> yes, we could just air the dirty laundry. Let, let's just fucking get our, our our gripes out there and in the open for sure. No, but but back to heroes die. I think yeah, there's a valid point here in uh, Stover's characterization and the just impressive scale with which he writes not only his protagonists but his antagonists. Where mm-hmm. you, you have Kane, who's, I mean, he's such a powerful character. You know, it's, it's so easy <laughs> to root for him, even though he's a dick. You know, he's, yep. he's a great anti-hero. But at the same time, you know, he puts a lot of effort into developing his villains and his antagonists. Yeah. Because I, I hesitate to call Milecoth a villain in this. Yeah, I was a lot more comfortable with that in the first half. But after the second half, you're totally right. He might not... Yeah, it's very much more uh, Bairn and uh, Kohlberg are villains, and Milecoth is an antagonist. Okay, okay, I can see that, that's fair, yeah. So, yeah, because obviously our protagonist, Kane, is working at cross-purposes. But there's a respect that not only uh, uh, comes from Kane to Milecoth, but by the end of the book, from the reader, even, where there's there's a, a... you know, like he, he's misguided and he, and he has flawed methods, but his heart's in the right place. He's trying to love his his children, oh yeah, so to speak, and oh. he's trying to be the best ruler he can. He just has really flawed methodologies. Oh yeah, that's why I spent all of the first half of this book, you know, the the previous podcast, just just glowing about Milecoth and how much how yeah. great. Of, of well, at, at that time I was calling him a villain, or maybe I just said antagonist. Pretty sure I said antagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, but how perfect I think that antagonist was. I mean, you do see that he legitimately cares for his people. You may or may not agree with his methods, but of course that's that's pretty common with a lot of you know ruthless kind of dictators. However, mm-hmm. I mean, he, he is somebody who actually has a good claim to the throne, not just physically, but in in the minds of his people as well. He can perform physical miracles before their eyes and uh that, that grants a lot of weight to his character uh in the, you know, in the Mal- he's a decent ruler yes as far as a right to th- to the throne he took it by conquest well sure but he didn't he list that he had uh right to the throne like when he was uh talking with kane i think i remember a spot when he had uh a mile cough when he was uh I think it was in it was in the in the first half of the book. I think it was even during his first interaction with Kane. He listed I think it was four different ways he has a right to the throne, and one of those was uh, through relation or through blood. In some no. way, I could be totally wrong on this. I could yeah, be absolutely you're, you're, wrong. On that. You're off track on that one. He he was okay. Hanto the Scythe before. He was like a no yeah, yeah. like scummy little necromancer art collector guy who yeah. he he, he had listing. absolutely no connection to the royal oh. family. I could because he was listing all these different ways he had the right to take at least to take a to take authority 
in the kingdom, but I, no. I could have sworn one of those was through. Okay, anyway, <laughs> no. I stand corrected. So, but still, I mean, the, the fact remains that he is the most powerful character that we see in this book, and as far as we know, exists Whoa. in that world. Uh, I what? mean, I think Are there's you gonna a, contest that. There's a little bit of maybe a contention there uh, with. Oh, Palace are you Rail. talking? Okay, with Sh- uh, Shambaraya. Yeah. Did I get that name right? Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. No, I'll, I'll I'll grant you that. And how awesome was that scene, by yes. the way? Oh my god. Yes. That that rise to glory, and then what she says to Milecoth. I can't remember yeah. exactly how. It, I have it written down, but I'm too lazy to look it up. But she says something along the lines of, "Hurt my husband, little godling." And I will show you what true pain really is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something along those lines. Of course, I'm paraphrasing there, but I had a legitimate goosebumps at yeah. that moment. Oh. I was, I think, I was falling asleep, and I felt the hair on the back of my neck rise, and I <laughs> smiled in my like in my half sleep trance, and I came back to full consciousness just for that scene. <laughs> now, as far being epic fantasy readers, we are used to seeing gods duke it out. Oh yeah. However, Stover does it particularly well in this. Um, it's believable that these are gods going going at it it's not just fight 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 Mm -hmm. there's a battle of will in addition to the the physical aspects of what's going on yeah Mm -hmm. that lends some nice uh depth and i think it speaks to the quality of his world building that doesn't really jar you out of the story at all that Palace Rill, a human mage, literally ascends to godhood in the middle of this book. You, you know, because it, yeah. it's it's consistent with the world that he's built. And it's like uh, Sanderson does in a lot of his books. It's just an extension of the magic system, like taking it a level deeper, something mm. that you just hadn't thought of before, but it, oh, yeah. the groundwork was already there. And... Uh, and it, it makes for some, you know, we, oh, yeah. we've talked about some some of our favorite, you know, moments in past books on this podcast where things are cinematic. The kind of thing you want to see oh, on the big screen. Yes. Some of the stuff in the climax of this book. Oh, my goodness. Oh, for sure. Oh, absolutely. You have those rapidly flashing viewpoints back and forth. You have all this stuff happening, but you still have this this very intimate kind of battle uh, during the climax between Kane and and Baird. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you you still get hints of what's going on around them. You know, this yeah. clash between these two gods, or uh, you know what we what I would consider like two representations of divinity there mm-hmm. because of course i mean even palace rill or shauna as she was you know i think they were back in the studio near the end she claimed that she was even though she was so powerful in that moment she still felt that she was just a smaller part of a larger <coughs> whole even though yes. she was also kind of that larger whole she was very very kind of um she, she wasn't exactly sure how to word it but i during that scene i did get a lot of sense that we're just getting a glimpse at what these gods really represent and what their the true magnitude of their power is. Yeah, I actually highlighted uh, one line. It wasn't from oh, yeah. that particular scene, but it, it gets this idea gets repeated several times uh, when we're in Shanna's point of view from Palace Rill's point of view, and she's merged with Shambaraya, and she says it was nothing more than the little rivulet called Shanna Layton called Palace Rill. You know, Ooh. in the context of this great river, where Ooh. she herself, her yeah. her individual identity is just a tiny little trickle in this great mm. river, but <laughs> she, her consciousness is what's focusing the river. Yeah, know? that's cool. I yeah, that's a cool little throw a moment that I didn't actually pick up on. Yeah, there yeah. there are a couple of points where she 
talks about herself in those terms where, where she's like, I am just one tiny little aspect of, mm -hmm. of a greater whole of the greater whole. And, uh, and, and yet because the greater whole is so unfocused, her focus can take it over. Yeah. And that gives us, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, one of just the coolest climactic battle scenes, yeah. you know, that we, we have, this this raging riot and battle on uh, in the stadium and you have Milkoff fighting against a literal river arcing through the sky above and yeah. then and then right there is Kane first dealing with Toa Saitel and then Lamarack and Bairn and uh and it comes to just the most satisfying conclusion. Yeah, no, it definitely does. There's there's uh, even humor mixed into this. Oh, yeah. Battles. Oh my where, god! Like he realizes uh, to quote Kane, the little cocksucker poisoned me mm -hmm. <laughs> when yeah. when Toa Saitel stabs him. It's just, yeah. it, like it breaks the tension up nicely. Yeah, but, it's, uh, the, you're right. The battle continues on. You're right. Uh, it I, was I, I a think that... satisfying battle in a way that uh, a lot of climactic battles aren't. Yeah, and there's yeah. a visceral element to it. That that's again speaks to uh, Stover's experience with martial arts that we talked about mm. in the last episode, where he he knows what it feels like, you know, to get oh, yeah. hit like that, or or to, I was able to pick know, up on that. You know, he did a such a good job of grounding the reader in the experience, and it meshes so well with the conceit of this world where the audience back on Earth is literally feeling everything that Kane is feeling. And that's why this first-person perspective in in the narrative works because it's Kane, uh, you know, sub-vocalizing and and doing his internal monologue for mm -hmm. the audience back on Earth, and that's ostensibly oh, yeah. what we're we're reading is is his dialogue, and it just it it's so seamless. It works so well. It's yeah, a, it's okay. a fantastic literary device. Okay, good. That because that was kind of like a, a question that I just wanted slight clarification on about this particular. I don't want to call it the magic system, but the technology that's kind of in the place uh -huh. of a magic system for part of this book. Um, <clears throat> so it is like true haptic feedback. It's not just seeing through Kane's eyes. They're not just in the yeah. moment and able to kind of like form their own emotions based around what they're seeing. They're actually feeling these physical sensations. Yes. Uh, so. Oh my. God, somebody who's first-handing, somebody who's first-handing is actually feeling they're they're completely yes, like, first-handing, good. Like put under okay. so that they're not experiencing their own stuff. They're put under right. and like they have the like neural implants and they have like IVs in them and yes. stuff. So so the the whole like first-hander birth as they call it, B E R T H, is is basically oh. messing with their hormones and their nerve endings okay. and stuff to mimic what Kane's thought emitter is sending back to Earth. Okay, so that's the, that's basically the distinction between the the first handers and like the general public, and second the general handers, audience. Yeah. Second handers. Okay, yeah, thank and, you. And so good for clearing that up. Uh, for most of this book, Kohlberg is second handing it. He's got a giant, you know, uh, yes, awesome big screen TV basically that he's watching it on, but he's present. Oh, yeah. He's still there in himself. Oh yeah. He needs so to that be, doesn't he can he? hit that emergency recall. <laughs> yeah. Which of course he fails to do in time near the end there. That was so neatly wrapped up. I loved Kane's plan. Oh, yeah. Was that his plan all along? Or was that just kind of like an in the moment decision, I think, the snap decision? I think it was an in the moment decision. 
Yeah, uh, it, it, it came across as one, right? Like he had he had yeah. the, the blade sticking out yeah. of his chest. Yeah. And he was like, oh, this is it. This is my moment. He grabbed him and zip, just sliced his oh, head man. right off so on the good. sword that was sticking out of his own. So I, I forget the name of the sword. Kosal. I'm coming blank. Kosal. Thank you very much. Oh, oh, it was just so great. that, Especially, it was the word that Stover used to describe it, which is kind of gruesome, so prepare yourselves. But it was, he zipped it right across. Yeah. And you, you kind of get that, like, uh, that kind of, like, razor blade feel that you kind of yeah. get. Because everybody's oh. cut themselves unexpectedly, just on the hand. It's oh, like, but, zip, oh, But shit, it goes even, you know? even further than that, because when he reaches up and with one hand grabs the hilt of Kosal to yeah. activate the magic... And then with the other hand grabs Lamorak's head and, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. yanks his neck against the blade. The sword is in Kane, and it is, yeah. like, it's, it's, it's like, vibrating against his spine. And he's got yeah. this, like, tooth-aching... <laughs> it makes you wonder how first-handers get, just pay so much money to experience oh. everything. Like, wouldn't, wouldn't yeah, you want if you're, uh, if something you're a not to person, be experienced? If you're a leisure person on Earth... There could be no greater thrill than to experience this kind of thing firsthand. Yeah, well, I just watched a Black Mirror episode kind of similar too with a doctor that was really into pain. And is, ugh, it was, no, it's just they the, talk yeah, about that. Kiss them is fucked. You know, they talk about that where uh, Kohlberg is like, "Man, if Kane actually dies here, do you know how much money people are going to spend?" Oh yeah, to of experience course, Kane yeah. dying. Yes, like even the grim, even those in the, in the control room. Yeah, and and so it's this it's this thing that goes beyond Kane to all actors. Anybody who's like a, a first hander or a subscriber, so to speak, like it's a it's a privilege to experience the actor die, which is so so messed up, you know. It's so dark. Oh, but I guess it's just kind of like a grim, realistic, maybe depressing kind of outlook on the future and where we're going with all these conveniences of modern day life to which we're you know taking for granted. Yeah. Um, an optimist but, uh, might wish to believe that if we, right here and right now, got that technology, that we wouldn't take it that far. Uh, I know uh, some people in the world would, but are you some people ready would to pay a little more? I imagine dying through someone else's oh, eyes. God. There's people I'm that'll not. pay money for anything nowadays. It's ugh, <laughs> jeebies Anyway, uh, I do want to spend a little more time talking about Mile Koth. Yeah. Uh, because I mean, we a lot in part two. Especially in part two, uh, we, we kind of see a different side of this divinity. Uh, we start to see him really kind of, I don't want to, I, well, I do want to say, he, he doubts his divinity. Uh, it's threatened. Because, like, for example, right at the very beginning of part two, he, he demands, he really, really makes it clear how he wants to know where Cain is, where Cain has disappeared to. Mm-hmm. He tells Toa Saital, or Maybe, maybe it was Baron, uh, that it is of equal importance to finding Simon Jester, which to him is a big threat to his nation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was, yeah, I have it written down, day five, chapter six, near the end, because it threatens his divinity. He doesn't know where Cain is, mm-hmm. and he feels threatened by that, you know, which is something we didn't really see much of him doing in, in the first half of this book. He just comes across as this totally omniscient, all-powerful ruler. Yeah, it's a weird... Uh, kind of situation and it's a neat bit of character building where Milkov is literally a god but he's a god in his infancy yeah who used to be a human and so he has human doubts that creep into his godhood and, and his you know all-encompassing sh- mm-hmm. self-assurance because you know at heart he still has that human in the back of his head 
telling him like, oh, well, maybe, maybe it didn't work or, or maybe I'm not omnipotent the way I should be. And, and it's a great bit of, of characterization and humanization for a superhuman character. Yeah. And that goes back yeah, to what I was talking good... about earlier, where he just does such a great job of rounding out and making his villains and his antagonists compelling characters and dynamic characters too. They do even his, uh, not all of them, but, but some of his antagonists change just as his protagonists change over the course of the book. Oh, yeah. Like Milkoff has a character arc in this book. He does. It's crazy. I, I loved it. I loved where it started and I loved where it ended up. I liked both ends of the spectrum there. Uh, but like, again, specifically about Milkoff, um, like when Kane ended up confronting him, you know, after he had returned from his disappearance, I mean, I was like, okay, how in the Lord Jesus is Cain going to talk his way out of this one? He is so dead, right? He's walking into the Iron Room. Uh, is it Iron Room? Yeah, iron the Throne? Iron Room. I, uh, the Iron Room. Yeah. Uh, and he's confronting Milokoth. But instead, we get to see, like, instead of seeing Milokoth just eviscerate him and strangle him with his own guts, you know, uh, we get to see Milokoth's sincere concern for his people as Cain ends up manipulating him into personally mm -hmm. intervening mm -hmm. with the burning city. Right. Right. It's, it's, it's such a good misdirection, which I will admit kind of took me a little out of the moment. And I was like, okay, Milecoff, you are supposed to be, you come off as so intelligent. How can you not see that he's clearly, but he's emotional. Here? He's emotional. And that is a, a key character element for Milecoff. It's like, he, yeah. And as you reference, he's, you, you know, over the infancy. course of this book, he does have moments where he lets his emotions get the better of him. And oh, yeah. it, it takes, you know, two thirds of the book for Kane to realize that mm -hmm. and realize, oh, this is a handle that I can use. But I want to, I want to kind of concentrate on Kane now in, sure, in sure. this aspect, and that is uh, the only reason Kane is able to uh, recognize that handle and use it is because of his conversation with his father, and and the whole inch toward daylight thing, and okay, and and his father's constant exhortations that like you can fight but you're thinking about fighting like Kane you need to think about fighting like Hari mm -hmm. and that goes back to what we talked about in the first episode of how Kane and Hari you know they kind of are separate characters they, they're separate people they think yeah. differently they act differently they are physically the same but you know we, we have these moments in the book where Stover hammers at home and the pronoun or, or not the pronoun, but, but the actual name changes in the middle oh, of yeah. a paragraph where it starts off with Hari oh, yeah. saying something to Kohlberg. And then by the end of the paragraph, he's pissed off beyond all imagining. And it's Kane now. Oh yeah. I think we even had one scene where it changed in part uh, one, right at the end of part one. It Yeah. Like it, it, it changed from I, it changed from first person to third person again. I think it was in the middle of a scene. Uh, no. The only time we get the first to third change is uh, is when it cuts from Overworld back to Earth. Basically, any time the thought emitter gets turned off, when Kane isn't online anymore... Right, when, when he got yanked person. back at the end of part yeah. one, right? Yeah, uh, so they, uh, yeah, that's what I was referring to. Like, it, like in, in the middle of a sentence, almost, it just kind of changed. You, know, you, you could see that moment where the thought emitter was deactivated. Yeah, but, but then... So right after that, you know, he Kane goes offline and he storms into Kohlberg's office, and it's Hari. Yeah, 
It's, oh, at first it's Hari. At first. Yeah, and that's my point, is that <laughs> it's Hari, and then when he he puts all the pieces together, and, and we talked about the last time, that little click, 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 yep. as the, the pieces fall together, and then suddenly it's Kane. Oh, yeah. You know? And so in this in this half of the book, it's the focus on Kane can't solve everything. Kane can't do this, but Hari can. Mm-hmm. And it's that acceptance and that, uh, you know, embracing of himself as Hari Michelson and not just, uh, you know, ducking under to Kane and letting his, like, primal, angry side just take over right. and his frustration take mm-hmm. over. That's that pivotal character development for for Hari, for Kane in this mm-hmm. book. And that's how he oh, yeah. wins. He's yeah, smart the... about things instead of just killing his way to his goal. Yeah, and that's where you see the growth, kind of. Well, for this oh, book, completely. Yeah. Where you see, yeah, that's what that's where you know. Okay, he's he has been through a journey, and that journey has come to an end. It might not the, be the end. Of course, we have more books in the future in, in this series to dive into. But he does get a satisfying ending to his character slash characters. I dare say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he very much yeah, does. Absolutely. This yeah, is a great example of the first book of a series that you could just read this book finish it and not read any of the others and have oh, a yeah. satisfying it, completed story it would work as a standalone as, yeah absolutely yeah kind of has a bittersweet ending you know Kane Kane is crippled he, he's got he's a uh, uh, paraplegic now you know wait what hold, wait hold. yeah Kane's a paraplegic now how did I miss that reading this through twice yeah no so Kosal goes through his spine and when I he thought he was just back, like vibrating against his spine no, it was no, very uncomfortable the, the, the last the last like few pages, Kane wakes up in the hospital and he's got no feeling below his waist. Oh, I thought that was due to like some uh, anesthetics. No, oh my no. god! Okay, you know what, boys? I'm done with the audiobooks. I'm missing too much info. That's it. <laughs> That's it. I am missing way too much. This is, I should not. No. Okay, I'm I'm reading yeah. physical copies or not physical, uh, well, but Kindle, my yeah. e-reader. Physical text from now on. I'm making that a promise. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. So All I right. mean, that's the bitter side of that is that you know the hero Kane, as far as the audiences on Earth are are concerned, the hero is dead. The hero's dead. Oh yeah. But Hari lived, and Hari gets sort of his happy ending. I mean, he gets Shauna back at the yep. end. Uh, there, she decides that she's willing to try it again. And he gets upcasted to administrator, and he takes over Colbert's old job. You know, and that's how the book. Oh, yeah. You know. Oh yeah. Talking about the the bittersweet ending here for Hari, um, what drives it home the most for me is that he's not actually happy mm-hmm. at the end of the book. I mean, we we mm-hmm. say yeah. happy ending, and like, yes, things worked it's out happy for, for him. us. Almost, but not, but not entirely. I it didn't feel you're particularly for. elated. Yeah, no, neither did I. Because I mean, oh, because well, Kane's were the bittersweet. Yeah, Kane's Kane's lack of joy. Fair, fair enough. Uh, took it out of it for me, and as far as I'm concerned, he doesn't experience any uh, pathos because of his extreme lack of moral character. We see in the second half of this book more clearly that he is not a good person. Not even a little bit. He's willing to to screw majesty over at the drop of a hat because it's convenient to him. He um, yeah. He justifies he, it uh sort of. Um he's a liar. He's 
he's willing to see any number of people dead for Palace. And oh, I yeah, that's where I was going to go with I don't buy next. his yeah. justification that that because he loves her, that excuses anything that he might do to anybody else. Mm. In a way, that that's just selfish. good enough for him, but it's so, not good enough for me. So I... I no, no, he's got a point, though. I see where you're coming from there, but I don't fully agree with it because he does show that care and emotion in the epilogue when Shauna visits him in the hospital and Shauna has those frank conversations about their relationship with him and mm-hmm. she eventually comes to the decision that, yes, I want to give this another try. He's not detached from that at all. And there are there are points where, you know, he, t- he talks to himself, like, or, or thinks to himself that, you know, he, he can't breathe. He's, he's so, like, involved in the emotional moment and then and then the the really big uh, uh kind of indicator is actually sort of removed and it's when she says uh i don't know if we can make anything work between us hari i really don't know i'm not the same woman you married different things are important to me now and you're not the same man either maybe maybe we could get to know each other again you think because i love you and I want to try to be together again. I want us both to try to be happy. And he says, Shauna, my God, Shauna. And then as he reached out to take her hand, a team of doctors with a crash cart burst through the door of his room. His telemetry had set off six different alarms. Well, yeah, but again, this you is know, specifically like, about Shauna. No, yeah. I, I, Pat but, was but saying it's, that, it, that... It's when indicating it comes to Shauna, that he... he is not a total sociopath. He's not detached from feeling the emotions of others. But I don't feel that's the point that Patrick was making. He, no, like, no, when it's it, not. He's, he's a sociopathic. Um, he's when it comes to other people interfering with protecting Shauna. Like, like there was a point during the during the climax when he said he would sacrifice every living soul in that entire oh, there's a, stadium. There's a great cheap at great twice the that. price if it would protect shauna and i think that's that's the point that pat was right, making exactly. that makes him just because he loves shauna doesn't excuse his justification of doing anything to protect her i think that's where he comes callous i i, I don't know maybe i'm letting a little more of my like impression of later books in the series cloud my thinking here but but even sure, with, sure. with duncan like it's it's the people close to kane that he elevates mm-hmm. and and it's not necessarily an exclusive club. Like, if he sees, like, a, a respect and allows a bond to develop, he's he's not going to be this total, like, hard-ass, totally cold. And and even Mylkoff at the end of this book comes into this. Yeah. Where, oh, yeah. you know, and it's... That's a good, like, kind of example of something that was against Kane's will. You know, he didn't choose to respect and eventually, in his own way, love Mylkov. He didn't choose that. It just happened. Yeah. So it's not just all about Shauna. Um, uh, you know? The only thing okay. I would say opposed to that is is Majesty, again, to bring him up. Yeah. But Majesty, Majesty betrayed example. him. Majesty is a friend of ten years. But Majesty betrayed him. Also, we know, because, again, exactly because how he, Majesty betrayed him. Uh, Kane comes to the realization that the whole reason Majesty was bankrolling the Simon Jester thing was because he was setting up the whole thing, and then he was going to roll it all up and betray all of them in return for a title with Toa Saitel. 
And that's why Palace puts the uh, charm on him. Yeah. Yeah. Like Kane yeah. Kane says straight up, he's like, this is way too small time for you. Why would like this is not worth your time. The reason you're doing this is because you were planning on betraying all of them and getting a title out of it. And when Yeah, but if I mean if and Kane is know, also willing to do that to in response, it's Well, but but it's revenge. And Kane right. oh, we know sure. yeah. we know yeah. in this book it doesn't matter what Kane thinks about you. If you betray him and you betray yeah. him in a mortal way, <laughs> good luck, bud. Like, yeah, he but will, he will seek his I, vengeance. However, it's just, fair be, to just point because out, he's justified doesn't make him a good person. Though. No, I'm not saying he's a good person. He's an anti-hero. He's a dick. But, I, okay, but I don't fair think enough. Fair he's, did, I don't think he's as like bereft of morality as as maybe you're making him out to be. I, I, my first impression was uh, going in, of course, having just read the book once or the second half I went through twice, but uh, Kane has a huge moral blind spot when it comes to protecting Shauna. And I think that I'm, I'm just predicting now that that's going to be a huge source of frustration or uh, inconvenience for him in going forward. I really think so. I mean, perhaps. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. certainly yeah. one of the, like, the greatest uh, one-liners in the whole book is uh, on... On, I have uh, so many of those written down. On that topic, um, uh, I, I, let me let me look it up. Oh, one sec, one sec. I I gotta look up the full quote and, and the context because just the one line it doesn't quite do it justice. I can just vamp for a bit with Pat if you want to keep looking in for the, that quote there. Yeah, in the meantime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the meantime, uh, there there was a moment and again where uh, just really quickly there's another point I wanted to make drawing like on the uh, the relationship in in Harry's skull between himself and the personality that is Kane. Mm-hmm. There was a moment at the end, at the very very end, after the entire you know climax in you know and after Shambaraya has has done her her battle with Milecoth and they have returned to the studio. There was a moment when uh, Shauna says she 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 refers to Harry as Kane. Mm-hmm. And he specifically mm-hmm. says, "Fuck Kane, call me Hari." Yeah. Uh, and this, you know, again, not only is this further evidence that he still personally considers the two to be totally separate, you know, uh, entities, yep. but I think this is drawing another another problem to the to the front uh, to the attention of the reader here is that maybe Hari's madly in love with Sh- with with Shauna, but I think Shauna is specifically in love more with Kane than mm. she is with Hari. Because she specifically says Kane there, even though they're back in the studio. Uh, oh, I she think says, it's the other on, way Kane. around. That's what it was. You think it's the other way I around? I think it's the other way around. Well, she she, she does mention that she despises Kane's yeah, kind of yeah. she leaves him because attitude. he because Hari believes that he is Kane. Oh, and she even takes it a step further, and she says, uh, she tells him that, she, or maybe it was an introspective moment, but she says, she claims that she actually ended up being with Lamarack in the first place mm-hmm. because he was so yeah. different yeah. From, from Kane. Kane. Yeah. But, but I think when it comes down to it, when it really comes down to it, and he's dying there taking his last final breaths, she says, hold on, Kane. And she says it, she whispers it in his ear, well, like, as, like a lover, you know? Uh, in Remind me, was that in the stadium or was that in the studio? That was in the studio. Okay. I think it was in the studio. I'm, I'm like 98% yeah, that certain that was right, in, that the in the studio. Yeah, that sounds right. But the, uh, there, there is like a valid a valid point though with you there, uh, with your point toward like maybe she loves Kane. And I think like part of her does love Kane, but oh, mostly sure. it's, it's Hari that she was in love with. But there are multiple points in this book where Palace envies Kane 
or his ability to uh, just do what needs to be done. You know? Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, but no, so I, I did find the uh, quote, and it was going oh, yeah. back to toward the end of day six when uh, uh, Kane is setting up this whole uh, revolution and riot, and he's convincing Majesty to set fires, you know? And, and yeah. to spread the rumors of Milecoff being an actor. Uh, and and the quote is, Burn the whole city, Majesty muses, shaking his head in slow disbelief. That's pretty extreme for the life of one woman. Fuck the city, yeah. I tell him. I'd burn <laughs> yeah. the world to yeah. save her. That, at yeah. least, oh. is not a lie. No. Oh, and we, we believe it. Why do we, I feel like you're yeah. being clever here, Drew? Uh, no, no, I, I'm not being clever. I think that's that's a. Why do I feel like I'm gonna come back after reading the rest of the books and be like, "Oh, Drew, you sneaky bastard." No, I'm, I'm not no? being sneaky. I promise on that one. Oh, okay, uh, okay, I, I think okay. that's just it's a it's an impact moment in the book, and it okay. it speaks to Kane's ability to sort of uh, detach himself, but at the same time, you know, you, you just finished this whole scene of of him like lying his face off to Majesty, right? <laughs> But as it turns out, he ends up being like, you know what? No, I'm going to set Majesty up to, to have what he wants. Hmm. Well, I it, it accidentally it, I a... works out that way well, later on. It's... Not due to anything. I'm, I'm, not talking, I'm not talking about anything that happens in Blade of Taishal. I'm saying the way Kane sets this up at the end of Heroes Die is that he gives Majesty what he wants. He sets up Majesty to be a duke under Toa Saitel. Yeah. And have yeah, a yeah. stranglehold I... over the underworld in a <laughs> in an alliance with Kirindal. Well, that that was a lie Kane told that became the truth. Uh, I don't think that was entirely a lie that Kane told. I think Wait, Kane, think Kane was... did. I think Kane did anticipate. Uh, okay. K- Kane has um. He's a, he's a smart dude. I mean, I yeah, be he has a sort of subconscious awareness of the effects of his plans on the world. And, uh, you know, where Kirindal figures out toward the end of this book that it's like, there's this imminence to Cain, this uh, potential violence that follows him everywhere, and there's that face-off scene in uh, Alien Games between the Faces and the, the Knights of Kanth. That was a good scene. Oh, it's a great scene. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that yeah. later. Um, yeah, I, there's a one-liner there I want to... Go sorry. But Kirindal recognizes that this black flow that uh, is Kane's shell is, is like the imminence of violence and the imminence of specifically change, you know? And, uh, yeah. And, and so Kane has a, a not, not as overt awareness of that as Kirindal gathers, but he has a subconscious awareness of it. And he, he kind of recognizes like, listen, the last time I was in on Kana and participating in events of the scale, there was a regime change. There was a revolution. And I think that's why Fair. he made that plan with Kirindal and Majesty. Not necessarily knowing and not being able to guarantee that it would work out the way the way he he convinces them it will. But he does it because he has an inherent guilt in him. And there's a uh, there's a line that I highlighted that I think uh, uh, speaks to this a bit. To his awareness of of what, you know, 
what the potential consequences of what he's doing are. And he says, uh, this is when he's heading into the stadium, onto the field, right, right in the climax. And he says, okay. I wonder, though, if any of the civilians out there had a premonition, a queasy feeling about coming here today. <clears throat> I wonder how many won't be surprised when the shit explodes. How many will feel only a sickening stomach drop of recognition? How many will die with, I knew I should have stayed home, echoing in their heads? And then he says, you know, if the situation was opposite, if someone I loved died because some guy did what I'm about to do, I wouldn't rest Mm -hmm. until I'd hunted that man down and killed him with my own hands. Yep. A little bit of hypocrisy there, but we're just going to slide. Kane has... I wouldn't call it hypocrisy. I would call it an awareness, an acceptance of the consequences that he is is potentially capable of causing. Oh, you're right. I suppose being a hypocrite would would require that he actually preach the opposite as well, yeah. instead of just yeah. It's, okay, fair enough. It, he he recognizes just how much chaos he can cause, and how he's totally still willing to and, do it, and uh, he's willing to do yeah. it. But at the same time, because he recognizes it, that's why he made these plans with with Kirindal and Majesty to set up a, a sort of safety net. Okay. Fair enough. And speaking, drawing really quickly back to Majesty again, I just wanted to give a shout out to his one liner that he had during the confrontation with Kirindal, mm-hmm. uh, when he, when he specifically turns to her and he says, "Oh, when you get in a pissing contest with giants, you're gonna get wet." <laughs> I love that line. I don't know what it is about that line. Maybe it's just like the, the inner nine-year-old inside of me just going, <laughs> that was funny. But it, I loved it. I mean, there's so many good one-liners oh. in this book. But oh, that yeah. one, that one stand, you know, that one stood out. I almost said standard. Jesus. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's a good, to you today? a good transition here. Uh, do we want to move into our three favorite scenes from this? Oh, hell yeah, yeah man. Uh, okay. Pat, you want to kick it off? Yeah, uh, the stadium scene has to take the cake. Probably yeah, for yeah. the whole book. Um, it was yeah. satisfying, action-packed, well done overall. Um, I liked the scene a lot where Milecoth, Toa Saitel, and Bairn all kind of figure out that Kane is screwing them over. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was a good indication yeah. of all their characters at the same time. I liked the way they work together when there's the three of them. Because yeah. generally, when it's the three of them, Baron isn't off like murdering children and <laughs> yeah. eating them. Yeah. Uh, you get to see that cohesive unit, yeah. Yeah, and, and one can see what Milecoth has in mind with putting those two together. Because when they start not hating each other and working together, they become much more effective. Ooh, and, and it ties back to uh, Hanto the Sides. Uh, tactic way back for the uh the race for the crown of dalcaneth and mm-hmm. and it continues into this book where he makes such a point about how he's like i prefer to have two different people working on the same issue oh the same pro- mm-hmm. yes you know mm-hmm. um and oh, yeah. the third to cap it all off is the scene where baron kills what's her name talon talon yeah talon, talon yeah. that's right you, um, you like that scene i mean uh, I didn't like what actually happened, but it was a good scene. <laughs> oh, okay. You're saying it was done, it was pulled off very well, is that what you're saying? It was pulled off very well. Okay. I did I not can, expect Talon to do as well as she did against Baron. 
Oh yeah. Yeah, me too. Um, and the line he has when he kills her. <laughs> oh. You oh. never thought it could happen to you. Oh. I thought you were about to say the line when he's fighting Kane and he says that other bitch gave me more problems than you have so far. <laughs> oh yeah, and Kane's I, like, "Well, she's way better than I ever was." <laughs> that I, line I, I, has I got, a lot of impact. I was surprised um, that Kane was able to admit that too. It's a slap in the oh. face to the archetype of the hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Just recklessly rolling into insanely <laughs> dangerous situations and coming out without a scratch. She did Baron, good though, didn't she? Baron is the destroyer of all our dreams. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that just gives you another reason to hate fucking Count Baron. Uh, oh, yeah. Fucking yeah. piece of shit. What a piece of crap. Um, mm. Anyway, how about you, Rob? Yeah. Okay, well, uh, okay, I want to start off by saying my favorite scene in the entire book, I'm pretty sure, was Kane's whole soliloquy. Uh, his condemnation of his entire audience, the first-handers, oh, everybody who's watching stole it him. out from underneath me. Oh, yeah? As Shambaraya is battling Milecoth, you know, the entire soliloquy was just so powerful. And you were absolutely right, Drew. I want to just take a quick step back here and point out that you did mention this during last podcast. How you you absolutely feel, even as a reader in these moments, that you're kind of still involved and you're kind of still guilty. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, just what a climax. I mean, there's really not much else that can be said about that. It stands on its own. If you If you've read it and you're listening to this, you know how good that scene was. Um, the revelation, uh, and how he managed, how, how Stover managed to finally tie that, that plot point up, the revelation about Lamarack's death and, and how, uh, Mile Koth ended up learning Kohlberg's name. You know, it's, it's a very neat way to get around that kind of whole kill switch Mm -hmm. problem that they have, Mm -hmm. you know, Mile magic at the moment of passing that was genius. I think And Kohlberg is, and I wrote down here in all caps, Kohlberg is in such deep shit now, (laughs) you know, in all caps. And, uh, of course, you know, this, this is tied probably for my favorite scene in the whole book. And it's not even remotely close to like, you know, the huge impact of of that first scene I was talking about the climax, but that kick to the balls though. (laughs) Oh my God. I was jumping for joy when that happened. I couldn't believe it. I was like, yes, yes. I was waiting for you to bring that up. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I think I ended up texting Drew as soon as I as soon as I read that, and I was like, "That kick to the balls, though." It was oh. awesome, and it was so much. It was done with so much detail too. Like Kane oh, yeah. could still could actually feel his Mile Koth's gigantic testicles squish against his instep. <laughs> oh my god, it was just it was gold. It was it was again just like Pat you mentioned earlier in this episode how it's really great in these huge bre- you know these breathtaking white knuckle gripping moments of of climax going on forever. It seems like, and then you get that little breather, that little giggle in the middle. It yeah. kind of mm-hmm. gives you brings you back and, and gets you ready for more. And I, I really think that was a perfectly uh, perfect example of that. Incidentally, Stover and I share that we're both martial artists. And having I recently am? taken such a wound in a bout of martial arts, <laughs> I can tell you Ooh, that my sweet what summer child. followed was entirely accurate. <laughs> if that is not something that's think, happened to you in I a think long time, that... don't think it's hyperbole. It's oh, yeah. I, I was a teenager at one point with some rather rambunctious friends who would, you know, occasionally just decide to drop kick me in the nuts. You know, every every young man, <laughs> I think, has experienced that pain before. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Drew, I imagine it's a, you, you've you've partaken, you've, you've experienced, you've stared uh, the devil in the eyes. Uh, not not specifically a kick, but I play hockey. Uh, I have blocked the shot. You know. Oh, yeah. As a hockey player, you're going to get so much. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. I actually lifted up off the ground with the force of a kick once. Yikes. That was... I think I was about 11 years old. No, thank you. Yeah. 
Oh my god. But anyway, yeah, so those are my three favorite scenes for the uh, second half of Heroes Die. Okay. Uh, yeah, so uh, with my three favorite, uh, again, I just want to reiterate, uh, you know, my first was that same scene that Rob just brought up with the uh, uh, soliloquy when, when Kane... He's not only speaking to his first-handers, but I really do think this is Kane breaking the fourth the wall and, and speaking mm-hmm. directly to the reader. And he says, you know, uh, I understand. I know what he meant. My father told me that to know the enemy is half the battle. I know you now. That's right. It's you. All of you who sit in comfort and watch me die, who see the twitch of my bowels through my own eyes, you are my enemy. And he goes on, you know, for a couple more paragraphs, but it's, it, it's such a visceral moment. It's, yeah. And it, it, it hits so hard and it really makes you reflect on just the kind of media you're consuming as you're reading this book. Like, you know, there, there's so much discussion around the grimdark subgenre of fantasy and, and lots of people are like, oh, you know, it's disgusting. It's way too graphic and gory. And then. And then there are people who just love it, and then there are people, like, I, I think I fall kind of more in the middle section where there, there are some, uh, some books in this grimdark kind of topic that I, I enjoy and some that I just really don't, and I, I've been kind of struggling to find a, a reason for why. And usually it's like, oh, well, you know, the, the graphic nature of things, like, it serves a purpose in the narrative. It's not just there mm-hmm. for shock value. Yeah, that's what I'm going next with you know? this, yeah. but But at the same time, it's like... I'm still consuming that media. You know, I'm still reading the acts of Cain where I'm like riveted to the page reading about a guy who's got a sword, like carving through his spine. And, and I, and I'm, I'm reading a book and saying like, I love to hate Bairn when the guy is constantly talking about rape and like horrific sexual assaults and, and, and like even worse stuff. I mean, I, the, the the family his little fantasy with the family yeah that was oh my goodness oh, yeah. yeah that was and hard so to read. It, this specifically right here this like half a page section of Kane talking really makes you reflect on yourself as a reader and I think yeah. that's a an amazing reading experience and that's something that I don't think I've ever noticed in another book I've read I've, yeah, no, I've I, never I, had I, another I author do this to me. You know, yeah. it, it was, it was very impressive what what Stover does and how he again seamlessly ties it into the narrative by manipulating point of view by making this the first person point of view of Kane, and and doing his uh, his soliloquy to his audience, but using the audience as a stand-in for Stover's audience. It was mm-hmm. very clever. Um, oh, yeah. But so moving on the. Uh, uh, the second scene that I really liked was actually when Kane goes and meets with a uh, Shermaya Dole mm. out in uh, Who's Hawaii. That again? Um, the the leisure the leisure woman who uh, Mark Velo is trying to get with. She's Shauna's. Oh, patron. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, but that scene, you know, they're they're in this garden, this beautiful lush landscape, and yet yeah. underneath the landscape is 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 like a you know totally uh, mined out a mountain. It's all infrastructure and all of this stuff. And Kane thinks about how this is a total facade. And yet in the facade, in the beautiful mask, there remains this blight because Shermaya Dole loves gardening, but she has <laughs> no taste. So in, in the yeah. midst of this 
you know, gorgeous landscape. There's this awful little garden that's just a blight on the side of the canyon wall, you know, and it's a, it's kind of a n neat emblem of what Earth has become. Like, interesting. You know, we, we know about uh, just from little little bits in this book. We know that there's a lot of blasted, irradiated land. We know there have been nuclear wars and all of this stuff, and and resources are scarce. But yet Hawaii, because it's owned by the super rich, the hyper rich, is mm -hmm. preserved. And yet even the preserved land, even the beautiful nature there, has been marred, despite their best efforts. Because they're yeah. that self-absorbed. They're that wasteful, and they're that destructive. So I liked that scene a lot. And then my third scene was, uh, you know nowhere near as deep as the first two. It's just, man, I, I want to see Palace Rill riding the freaking river down. Oh, and like yeah. Blowing up the bridge. And I, that rise to glory oh, is really yeah. it's, notable. Of this all the books I've read, this, this series is probably the one that I most want to be turned into a TV series. Uh, okay. not, not just okay. for the story and the characters and stuff, but also because the way it's set up, I think, would work yeah. really, really well for it. Oh, yeah, TV you think series. it would translate well. Yeah, yeah, you know, because it yeah, literally no, is, like, a TV show in the book, right? So... It would make yeah. a good movie, actually. It's it's short and concise enough to where you yeah. can fit that into two hours without uh, Just out. for Heroes Die. Just for Heroes yeah, Die. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's no, I, probably yeah. the most cinematic of the series... In, yep. in that aspect. Yeah, yeah. But if you wanted to do the whole Acts of Cain, I think it would need to be a TV show. Right. You couldn't do, like, oh, four movies. Yeah. The, 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 the way the books... Mm, we could, but... Were, well, just just wait until yeah, you read the later books. It wouldn't be right. Oh, okay. Yeah, they, they wouldn't work for movies the way Heroes Die would. Uh, uh, the fourth one in particular is a very cerebral experience. Yeah, it's, it's very different. Uh, but anyway, so those are my three. And, uh, awesome. I think we should, you know... If we have any, go into closing thoughts. Yeah, further thoughts before we go into the final draft. Yeah, yeah, I've got a couple. I was just about to uh, about to ask if you guys wanted to get some closing thoughts in. Should I just uh, should I start? Knock yourself out. Yeah. Man. Okay, so um, I just want to draw. The, there was something I just uh, I just thought of while you were talking there, Drew, mm -hmm. and it was uh, now 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 I've lost it again. Oh my god. Oh, context. Okay, thank you. So the uh, when you were talking about and, and again talk about a, a favorite scene that we you and I have in common here mm -hmm. was Kane's soliloquy, how he's accusing all the first handers and his audience, and of course, in a way you get the feeling that he's accusing the reader, right? And I just want to say that I think if even if you're the kind of person who does or if you find yourself listening to this podcast, mm -hmm. you finish the book and you've decided that you don't like the book, I still want to say I think the book is worth reading just so you can get the appropriate amount of context for that one soliloquy alone. Because that itself was worth, I think, everything that I read through this book. I mean, I loved the book personally, but I can also see why a lot of people wouldn't. Mm -hmm. How it's a little too dark, it's a little too gritty. But, you know, on, on the same topic, on the same subject, you know, I want to say that Stover's prose, it feels fresh, it feels full of energy. Um, it's probably the darkest and most graphic book I've ever read. And, you know, the the action... The thing about the action, though, or, the, or the, at least the graphic scenes... Uh, that the attention, and this is a, a point that we brought up in the last podcast, the attention is not too focused on it. I think Stover's narrative momentum 
it's it's just it's too great to spend too much time dwelling on the on the dark and on the violence and on the pain yeah. and on the torture. You know, in in effect, uh, I think Stover manages to make the violence and gore kind of accentuate the book rather than dominate it. Um, so I think that was something he did very well. And I, if there's only one complaint I have about this book, and there is one, but it's only one, I just I don't think Bairn died horribly enough. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so that's getting it. a knife jammed into the top of your head isn't nope, bad enough? No, that's too and good then, for him. Then, that's a little too good for him. And then getting, like, stirred around so it I was kind of hoping he'd be brains. like, oh, God, brace yourself. I was kind of hoping he'd get a little, you know, some just desserts. Like, he'd get raped to death or something oh. like that, you know? Like, geez, there's a sentence I never thought would come out of my face, but there it is, <laughs> you know? Thank you, Stover, for making me hate a character that much. <laughs> hey, fair enough, man. Yeah. Anyway, those are my closing thoughts. You guys go ahead. <laughs> um... My issue from beginning to end of this book is that it's never been harder for me to root for a hero or even an anti-hero as hard as it was for me to root for Kane. No shit, really? Yeah. There is hmm. no other character that I had to try and, and hope that he came out on top, including certain figures like Angus Thermopylae from the Gap Cycle. What? More than Angus. More than <laughs> Angus. Um, Angus is so much worse than Indeed. Kane. Drew, Indeed. is that what you saw coming? Is that why you were like, hold yeah, on? Hold yeah, on. I was about to ask. <laughs> um, Drew raised his finger in the webcam there. He's like, I know where this is going. Once oh, shit, we read he's not the Gap say. Cycle and therefore have some context about Angus's character, okay. I'd like right. to have a discussion about the similarities and the differences between Angus and Kane. Okay, okay. However, okay, okay. Uh, my point my point still stands that, <laughs> good lord, it was hard to root for that guy. Now, I ended up getting there, <laughs> but it was a struggle. Like, I didn't okay. not care about what was happening, which would have been a fatal flaw. Yes. Uh, it was not a fatal flaw, but it is certainly a drawback for me, as far as this first book goes. Okay. Um... And it was it was mentioned before that this one doesn't need a sequel in order to be a complete story. Mm-hmm. And yeah, one could argue sure. um, that it shouldn't have received them. But, you know, it's critically acclaimed. It was it and, and things that sell well. It's almost inevitable that I will say this. They're going to get sequels. Well. It did not. It did not sell well. No, well, no, it's really. I, I read that it was commercially no, it, it at was, least viable. Uh, in fact, it went out of print, and that is why we have such dramatically different covers for the last three books in the series. I see. And even those have all gone out of print since. It, the The Axe of Cain did <laughs> not sell well at all, and I think that's a I did read that. crime. I mean, com- compared to what Stover's known for, I mean, how do you beat Star Wars? I mean. Uh, yeah, yeah. You can't I really comp- or so not beat, but how do you compete with it in the first place? I'm not surprised that Axe of Kings is. is uh... it, I talked about this in the first episode a little bit. It, it, he really was ahead of his time. If Stover published this book, this sure. exact book, no changes to it. If he published it in 2005 instead of 1998, this is one of the m- most beloved grimdark fantasy novels of all time. But because of when he published it, that was not the zeitgeist yeah, I... of fantasy. That Game was of Thrones, the, yeah, Martin really hit that. That right was the there peak. Right Nineteen ninety-eight. That's the peak of like epic, heroic, new age fantasy with the Wheel of Time and the Sword yeah, Wheel of, of Time Truth. was on book and four, uh, five. Uh, at in nineteen ninety-eight, I believe there had been seven. I want to say uh, eight, seven or eight. 
I think Winter's Power Heart Swords? was. I think Winter's no. Heart was two thousand. So that, I mean, I know the first six were out by nineteen ninety four. Anyway, anyway, but yeah, <laughs> that's just uh, kind of an interesting thing. And, and I talked about that. I I recently wrote an article about Heroes Die for Tor.com, and I talked a little bit. And about I have to go the, read it a second time. Cultural now context, context of the release of this mm-hmm. book, and. Uh, a little bit about why maybe it didn't succeed the way it could have. So one of Hoyt's monologues, which are always enjoyable, touches on this very aspect of our timing, general and literature. Timing, yeah, yeah. Is, is what in the comes way of to kings. our mind because we're reading a book. Originality is all, and timing is is valued more in some ways than uh, quality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is which is a, a bum rap. For any artist. Sure. But it is one of the things with which we must contend. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yep, yep. All right, you guys want to head into the uh, uh, into the final draft? So Do you have any closing thoughts? I, I have a, a, a last thought here. Um, and yeah, that is you. the politics of this book. Hmm. Uh, I think it it's not necessarily heavy-handed, uh, if you're if you're not familiar with some of these ideas, you, you could probably miss them a little bit. But this is an extremely libertarian book. Uh, the focus on the historical names that we hear in this, when when Kane talks about banned texts, you know, it's uh, guys like uh, Thomas Paine and John Locke, and and then he even does like some. Uh, 20th century science fiction writers and he always mentions Heinlein and Heinlein specifically ties in with this book with Simon Jester so if anybody has read The Moon is a Harsh Mistress before reading Heroes Die they will immediately pick up on this Uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress is a science fiction novel written by Robert Heinlein and it deals with a uh, a lunar penal colony that revolts against earth essentially and one of the main characters in the book is a computer that becomes self-aware and its nickname its alias is simon jester oh really this computer espouses a libertarian revolution against earth and that is 110 percent where uh um matthew stover (laughs) took that name and and that is why uh, Palace Rill acts the way she does, and you will notice that in certain ways, uh, the politics of both Kane and Palace Rill, and especially Duncan Michelson, are extremely libertarian. Mm-hmm. And that is something that, as we continue reading through these books, we need to, you know, be aware of and keep in mind uh, that there is, even if it's not super heavy-handed, it's kind of like obvious if you're in the know. If you're not in the know, obviously, like. Rob didn't know the Simon Jester reference, you know, yeah. uh, it, it can fly over your head pretty easily, but going forward, it's something to keep in mind with the uh, motivations and mindsets of the characters in these books and comparing uh, uh, political ideologies in this series. Sweet. Sweet. So, so you guys want to uh, head into the final draft? Let's do it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I got the boring choice today, so I'll, I'll just go first. I'm sure what you guys have is a slightly more interesting. I, once again, didn't really have the opportunity to go to the beer store this weekend. So I am just drinking, you know, the, the old trusty 
uh, Captain Morgan. Spiced rum. That's oh. what I've been sipping on during the course of this uh, this podcast. Here. The good. I didn't realize the good captain had joined us for this episode. Yeah, <laughs> he has joined us. He's actually joined us for one before. I think I, he too, has but, at uh, least one. Yeah. I, I recall. Um, I am drinking a beer called Damnation from Damnation? the Russian River Brewing Company. It is a golden ale. Uh, it was delicious. I finished it very quickly, which is a testament to its quality. <laughs> Um, I'm trying to find the ABV. Aha, uh-huh, 7.5%. Yeah. Um, That's a strong beer. Maybe Damnation isn't the theme uh, to, that this book ends on, but it's certainly where we begin, I'd say. I, I think I think there is a little bit of it in the end. <laughs> yeah, we, I was going to say. about, what... uh, at least from Milecost's perspective, that yeah. he has Oh, yes, I forgot to touch on this. this. That there's that, uh, that moment of realization... Rakane's like, wow, Milecoth is just now realizing that that horrible place that he was trying to make better, that is actually paradise, and he has come yeah. to hell. You know? <laughs> yeah. That was a moment I totally forgot to talk about and I wanted to when we were discussing Milecoth. I love the fact that he ended up on Earth. I love that. Oh, I, yeah. I, I that didn't even see that coming. I wasn't even prepared to be excited for something like that, but I mm-hmm. absolutely am seeing excited mm-hmm. to see where that goes forward. Sorry, I just I needed to get that out before sure, I forgot. Sure, sure. Uh, so mine is thematically appropriate. Uh, of course. I am drinking a double dry hopped India Pale Ale from Microphone Brewing Company. It is very good. It's it's a really, really balanced IPA. Uh, it certainly has that bitter hoppiness, but it has a, a good citrus palette to it as well. Uh, I, I'm not usually a huge IPA fan, but this yeah, is quite it, as nice. You mentioned. Uh, it's okay. 7%. It is called Heads Will Roll. <laughs> God damn it, Drew. God damn it. And uh, let us all pause and heave a collective gasp of surprise. There. How do you do it every week, man? It's a Yet talent. again. Oh my God. Most thematically appropriate beer belongs to Drew. I'm just face palming right now. Uh, God. Anyway, awesome. Yeah, sweet, so, sweet. Uh, Thank you once again for joining us. This has been episode 13 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, joined by my co-host, of course, Rob Santos. And uh, uh, our awesome sound engineer, Pat McCaffrey. What it do. Uh, So (laughs) next up, uh, we will be continuing with the Acts of Cain. We're going to head into Blade of Tai Shao. We will be reading the first 11 chapters, which is just about half the book. Uh, and uh, there are going to be some very, very interesting things to talk about with that. So I hope you join us again next week. We'll catch you next time. Peace. Awesome. Thanks, everybody.